So today we will begin discussing the major eschatological views. And along the way, we want to define some key terms and identify the major differences between the various positions. And then, Lord willing, next week, armed with a basic understanding of the landscape, we'll examine what the critical issues in eschatology are. Um, And that will help us understand the landscape and why such a diversity of positions actually exist. And more importantly, the importance of it on our theology, upon ministry, and our own Bible reading. So, but to better prepare for that discussion, it's really helpful if you're already a bit familiar with some of the terminology that's going to be used. So I want to apologize in advance that at times today I might resemble a talking dictionary. Uh, We're going to be reading definitions and we're going to be explaining them. We'll be in the biblical text a little bit. Uh, But the main point of today is not necessarily to argue for a specific position, although it won't be a secret where I'm I'm going, Um, but to familiarize everyone with the major viewpoints that you're able to track next week's discussion and discussion here. And that way, you can use this glossary of sorts as a reference. We may add to it as we go. But it'll be really helpful if you're aware of these these truths, and, or aware, at least aware of these categories and terms as we move forward, and then in future sessions, we'll actually directly present a case for a biblical view of eschatology. And so another note, that in 45 minutes or 40 minutes, we're attempting to survey a very broad spectrum of beliefs. And so it would be really easy in trying to explain people's beliefs if each person that believed in one of these views believed it consistently, right? If they subscribed to beliefs that fell in line with nice, succinct definitions. Uh, but the reality is, is that people's beliefs often don't fall within the boundaries. And so there is no attempt to misrepresent someone but we're going to explain the broad categories and the broad things that typically define these various positions. But you may be aware of an author that says, hey, I know an author that believes this, and they don't believe that, and you're probably correct. You know, we want to be charitable to everyone, um, but this is an attempt to just provide a general overview, not necessarily to describe the, the different flavors and nuances of every single position. So beginning, we, we, I start with what I would refer to as we begin to dive into these terms, but dive into an understanding of eschatology is really the, the millennial litmus test. Uh, when it comes to understanding at least the, the major positions, one of the easiest ways to start is to understand how each view relates to the teaching of the millennium. And so the first definition on your page is the millennium. It is the 1,000-year period of time during which Jesus, the Messiah, will rule over the world seated on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem, and that's described in Revelation 20. And so something to be aware of, and we, we touched on this very quickly last week, is that the millennium is to be distinguished as separate from eternity future or the eternal state. Right, that is that never-ending era that follows Christ's millennial kingdom reign, and that's spoken of in Revelation 21 and 22. Right, this is heaven literally on earth, or in the new heavens and the new earth. So the millennium is is separate from the eternal state. 
And historically, the, the pivotal issue in the study of eschatology has been seen as the timing of the second coming of Jesus Christ. So all evangelical positions affirm that Jesus Christ is coming again. Uh, but the question is, when will Jesus Christ return? So we don't attempt to answer this question, nor do the credible opinions attempt to answer this question by setting dates. But rather, each position is understood by the way it or is described by what it believes about the timing of Jesus' return in relationship to this millennium that is described in Revelation 20. So what I want to do is before we jump into the remainder of the definitions, I want to look together at Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. So if you turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19. And this is a section of scripture where we get our concept of a millennium. And so to preface this discussion, it's important to note that Revelation 20 is not the only or even the primary passage in the Bible that establishes the doctrine of the millennial kingdom. The doctrine of the, king, the, doctrine of the kingdom of the Messiah on earth was long ago established in the Old Testament. But the unique contribution of Revelation 20 is that it is the only place that defines the length of that kingdom. So if it were, even if it were without Revelation 20, we would actually still have a very robust, vivid picture of what the millennium is all about. But what we would be missing is just, is the length. So as we discuss this and we think, you hear comments referring to as, isn't this just all about one passage? Um, the length, yes. Um, but in terms of what, what the, the character of the kingdom, uh, that is spread throughout the content of our Bible. So here we are in Revelation 19, uh, verse 11 describes the scene when after seven years of tribulation on earth, right, this is that time of tribulation, uh, Smedley talked to us about this morning, also known as the time of Jacob's trouble, um, and Jesus' long-awaited to the return to the earth has been described. Beginning in verse 15, we now hear about the, the character of this coming. So if we'll re begin reading together in verse 15... From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. If we continue in verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is a pretty stunning scene. Jesus has returned with judgment on his enemies on the earth. And then in chapter 20, verse 1, we are told what Jesus does to Satan. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. 
And he threw him into the abyss, and he shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he would not, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. So here we find out that after Jesus returned, Satan is restrained in a place known as the abyss, so he can no longer deceive mankind for a thousand-year period until he is released again at the end of this thousand-year period of time. And then in verse 4, we read about those who were actually killed during this tribulation this upon the earth that preceded Jesus' return. Verse 4, And then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So here in Revelation 20, we have this thousand-year period of time mentioned six times. And from this passage, what we learn about this time period is that it is a time during which Satan is bound. Believers, including those that were martyred during the the preceding tribulation on the earth, are resurrected, and they reign over the earth and the nations alongside Christ until these thousand years are complete. Then Satan is released, and he wages war, a final war against the saints on earth, before finally Christ resurrects all of the remaining dead who did not follow the Lord, and they, alongside Satan and all of God's enemies, are cast into the lake of fire. Now, there are a lot of questions that this section of Scripture likely raises, but we'll content ourselves here just to focus on this one aspect, and that is the reality of this 1,000-year period where Christ is reigning on the Davidic throne with the resurrected believers over the nations while Satan is bound. And this is the time period known as the millennium. Sin hasn't been done away with yet, but Satan's absence, the physical presence of Christ executing his perfect reign over the earth alongside glorified saints will result in a world that looks substantially different than today. But it is not yet the new heavens and the new earth, but rather a foretaste of the eternal state where sin and death is finally done away with. And it is this millennium which is refer, can be referred to as an intermediate kingdom on earth. That is a kingdom that is taking place between the current age 
and between the eternal state. And it is this very millennial time period that helps mark and helps us understand the major positions and how they answer this question of the timing of the return of Christ in relationship to this period. And we just read parts of Revelation 19 and 20. So from a face value chronological reading of this section, it's apparent that Jesus returns prior to the millennial period since he is present on earth while he is judging and while he is reigning. But three views have marked Christianity with respect to this question. Premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. So those are the three definitions that we'll move to next to begin to, to walk through this. And when we try to discern what each of these positions teach, you know, we're basically going to look at the prefix that is attached to the word millennialism. And so I have the definitions on the page. Premillennialism, meaning prior to or pre the millennium. Let's read the definition together. Premillennialism is a second century AD prophetic school of thought, teaching that Christ rules over an earthly kingdom after his second coming. So Christ will return before the millennial kingdom, and then the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, will be ushered in after that millennial kingdom. And that begins in Revelation 21. Um, according to a, a survey in 2011 of evangelical church leaders, um, a majority of church leaders, or 65%, identified with premillennial theology. So this is the predominant view within, broad, within uh, the broader evangelical church today. The next one, there's a lot more we can say about that, and we will, but the next one is amillennialism. This has the A or A prefix, which cancels out the meaning of the word. So amillennialism is essentially the idea that Christ returns without reference to any type of earthly millennium. In fact, amillennialists typically say that Christ's reign is not on earth. And so let's take a look at the definition on your page. It is a 4th century A.D. school of prophetic thought that teaches that the church is a spiritual Israel. Christ rules a heavenly kingdom, and all end-time events occur almost simultaneously, just prior to eternity future commencing. So Jesus reigns under amillennialism from a heavenly sphere from above. Um, And so some prefer within amillennialism to actually call it Realize millennialism, meaning that the reign and the kingdom is already in existence. So, but essentially, this is the no millennial position in that there is no literal 1,000 year period on earth. Revelation 20 is being fulfilled spiritually in the present age between the two comings of Jesus. Some amillennialists believe that the millennium is being fulfilled from heaven. As Jesus and perfected saints rule, others believe that the kingdom involves the current reign of the church on earth um, over the life of believers, and some combine some form of both of these ideas. So again, as we mentioned, there's, there's flavors and varieties of these various beliefs. 
But in order to teach that the millennium in Revelation 20 is present and spiritual, all millennialism has to rely on a recapitulation view of Revelation. And essentially, in that approach, Revelation doesn't present events sequentially, but rather captures the same events between the two comings of Jesus from multiple angles to describe the same period of time over and over again. So the seven you know, seals that you might be familiar with Revelation are, in fact, the seven trumpets. The seven trumpets are, in fact, the seven bowls. And all of that time is the destruction, is the same as the destruction that we see in Revelation 19. Right? And, and so those, that's a recapitulation view. The same event is described multiple times. And in this view, Revelation 20 doesn't follow Revelation 19 chronologically, but takes the reader back to the beginning of this time period, right? And that includes the binding of Satan. So if Satan is bound for a millennialist, he is bound in this age. And that might be surprising for you to think that Satan is already bound. So in what sense do amillennialists claim, or typically claim, that Satan is already bound and that this binding is already occurring today? Well, they would say, some might say, that it is in the sense that Satan was defeated at the cross by Christ and he is unable to stop the spread of the gospel to the nations. So what it believes is when this era of the millennial kingdom runs its course, then Jesus will return from heaven. And in that time... There will be one general resurrection and judgment of the righteous and the wicked, and then the eternal state will commence. So important to all millennialism is that both the tribulation, which we'll discuss in a few minutes, and Christ's millennium, his millennial kingdom, are running concurrently. They're all taking place right now in this age, and they are not future events, but rather present and ongoing events. And now, it's important to note that premillennialism, not amillennialism, was actually the predominant view of the first few hundred years of church history. However, uh, premillennial beliefs eventually gave way to amillennialism as the predominant view after Constantine brought Christianity to supposedly to the Roman Empire as a state religion, and interpreters increasingly began to interpret Scripture's promised millennium as taking place spiritually in the current age. Augustine is typically seen as the father of amillennialism. So with, under amillennialism, they transformed the physical and national promises to Israel into spiritual promises for the church. And it holds that the church has become the new or the true Israel. So we mentioned premillennialism is held by roughly 65% of evangelicals today. Under that same survey, they found that 13% of evangelicals hold to amillennialism. And then the last major view, the fourth definition, is postmillennialism. And this is the idea that Christ will return post or after the millennium of Revelation 20. 
So reading the definition, this is an 18th century AD prophetic school of thought that anticipates the church triumphing over the world prior to Christ's second coming. It was most popular in the 19th century, and this view holds that the world will become progressively better with the ultimate triumph of the gospel, and Christ will return after the millennium. Um, This has waned in popularity, but more recently has been uh, revised in Christian Reconstructionism. Uh, we, won't, we won't discuss that at length here. Um, but in post-millennialism, it's important to understand that the church is viewed as becoming increasingly triumphant in its proclamation of the gospel and the spreading of the kingdom to the world. And eventually, that triumph will come to permeate all of society and every nation, and it will usher in a golden age of the church And then after this church has gone on for a period of time, maybe a thousand years, maybe an undefined really long period of time, then that will immediately usher in the eternal state. So the church has a very active role in hastening and bringing about Jesus' return. Postmillennialism also interprets Revelation 20 with the binding of Satan and the reign of the saints as occurring in the present age. This is occurring right now. But unlike amillennialism, which we discussed, the post-millennial view is very optimistic in, in that it sees that this millennium is actually going to transform the world to Christ. And just a quick note on that. Far from teaching that the world is headed for a Christian golden age before Jesus returns, the Bible presents deteriorating conditions prior to Jesus' return. Just one example, and we can go to many, is 2 Timothy 3.1. Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So what the Bible presents is exactly the opposite of what postmillennialism holds. Rather than things getting progressively better until finally Jesus returns, the Bible presents a picture of things getting continually worse and rebellion against God continuing to increase. But so both premillennialism and amillennialism rightly assert that this present that the present age Um, And the age before Jesus' return will actually witness a worsening of conditions on earth. But post-millennialism, it it holds the opposite. Um, It's something to, as we understand the Christian landscape and those who would affirm this particular belief, it's really easy to understand with if the church can hasten the return of Christ by ushering in this golden age, it's easy to understand why so many post-millennialists have often stressed engagement in the world, and in particular in the area of, of politics, for example. Um, Rush Dooney, who is a post-millennialist, actually outlined a, a seven-point course of action that every pre-millennialist or post-millennialist ought to subscribe to, and the first two are things that we would affirm, emphasis on the family, the church, The third is not a bad idea. Christian schools, colleges, institutes, and training centers are an urgent necessity. But number four, Christian political action is necessary towards making the state again a Christian state and its actions conform with the law of God. 
So here, when we understand what are our duties as Christians, it's those who would subscribe to a post-millennial system. There is a theological basis on why we need to put believers into every seat of power and every political office. And so it's historically, when often when you see very ardent Christian political activism, you can often trace post-millennialism or some, some form of reconstructionism um, that usually had some sort of influence, uh, whether knowingly or unknowingly. So where do post-millennialists support their claims? Post-millennialism, uh, they often quote Old Testament texts that speak of the earth being transformed to support evidence of their view. But it's important to remember that premillennialists, we, we claim the same passages so the issue is not whether the Messiah's kingdom will transform everything, but rather when these conditions will occur. So what post-millennialism lacks is evidence that the earth is going to be transformed for the better prior to the return of Christ, without the physical presence of the Messiah on earth. Um, the earth will be transformed uh, during this period immediately prior to Christ's return, but not for the better. So in summary, that was a long discussion of the first three bullets. Uh, some of the rest will go a little bit quicker. Uh, but that's basically what the three views hold in a nutshell. You take the term millennialism, look at the prefix, and then understand what each of those views has to say about, a, about their opinions in relationship to this millennial reign of Christ. And it's important that when we look at each of these views, despite all of their differences, is that we can identify supporters for all of these views that we would consider brothers in Christ. Those who affirm the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Those who affirm the lordship of Jesus Christ. They affirm that the Bible is a sole authority and that it is inerrant in everything that it intends to communicate. So while we may differ on eschatology we often find ourselves in strong agreement with these believers on issues of the gospel. So we, we, we want to keep that in front of us. But that being said, there are differences and there are impacts upon how we read our Bibles. And so we want to, to, to move on. There is another position that we'll mention only briefly, since you might occasionally hear the term, and that is preterism. That's the last definition on this section. And it is a prophetic school of taught, thought that proposes that Christ's second coming actually occurred in AD 70. And I see a typo on the page there. But essentially, preterism holds that there is no second coming of Jesus Christ. He's already returned. Um, and you might hear, and that's typically been seen as outside of Orthodox Christianity. You know, you've got to ignore a lot of sections of Scripture. But I wanted to mention it because you might see, hear the term. Some are described as that might not agree with that. Sometimes some who hold the amillennial position or postmillennial position as being a partial preterist. And that is they view that some of the future prophetic events have already occurred. Uh, but that's different than a full preterism that actually denies that Jesus Christ is coming again because he already did so in 8070. So uh, if you hear those terms, be aware. And there's 
pretty big difference usually between someone that's partially preterist and full preterist. Um, but again, generally that's outside of evangelicalism. So moving back to the three main views, if you look at the next few definitions, they now come back to this period of time that is before Christ's second coming, which we touched briefly on this morning, that is the time of the tribulation or Jacob's trouble or Daniel's 70th week. And so this is that period of time that occupies the majority of the book of Revelation and specifically chapters 6 through 19. And so just there's uh, the, the terms that are in front of you, uh, the tribulation and Daniel's 70th week are just ter- similar terms for the same event. This is that seven-year period where God judges an unbelieving world and his disobedient people, Israel. Um, and, and so that helps us understand when we move into the discussion of the rapture. So what is the rapture? The rapture is the snatching of the church out of the world by Christ that's spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And, and you might have heard, you know what, the term rapture doesn't appear anywhere in Scripture. It does. Um, if you were actually reading your Latin version of Scripture, you would have come across the term rapture, which is the rapture is where we get our term. But in our English Bibles, it's this term that is catching up. So when someone says the term rapture isn't in the Bible, it's just the Latin interpretation of this same word that we say it's a catching up. So would it be better to refer to this doctrine as the catching up of the church? Sure. Um, Good luck on that catching on. But what's more important than the word itself is the timing. And when are believers in this church caught up by Christ? And given glorified bodies as described in 1 Corinthians 15. And there are three major views and then maybe a fourth that we'll mention. The first is pre-tribulationism. That is the belief that the rapture takes place before Daniel's 70th week, before the tribulation. Um, About a year ago, um, Omri Miles taught from 1 Thessalonians 4 and spoke in support of the pre-tribulational position. The second position is post-tribulationism. This is where the rapture is actually placed at the end of Daniel's 70th week, or the end of the seven years. And then there's the mid-tribulation position. You can guess where that occurs. And then finally, the pre-wrath tribulation position. And this is a very minor, uh, it's not held very often, and it suffers from a lack of scholars. Not that there's poor scholarship, but very few people actually writing on it. But essentially, it happens somewhere near the end of the tribulation in a period usually associated after the sixth seal of Revelation is open. It exists. Be aware of it. You may never come across somebody who actually believes this. But it's helpful to consider that taking any position, any one of these four positions, with the exception of post-tribulationism, presupposes a belief that the tribulation is actually future. So when we talk about the rapture, we're talking about those who typically believe that the, the tribulation is still future, uh, with the exception of the post-trib, which we'll discuss. 
Um, and, and as we discuss, as we talk about these various beliefs, it's important to know that we have different flavors. Within premillennialism, there are different flavors and nuances of that. And so we want to move now to talk about these different flavors of premillennialism or those that believe that the return of Christ comes prior to the millennial kingdom. So the first is futuristic premillennialism. And the definition I have for you on the page is it is a school of prophetic thought that results from a normal use of hermeneutics and produces a futuristic view of Revelation 6 through 20, including Christ's 1,000-year millennial kingdom. You know, this was the predominant view of the early church. And this would be a good description um, in as far as the definition goes of what is taught and held by this church. Um, another name that may be given for futuristic premillennialism, although more specific and sometimes uh, known for a slightly different emphasis, is dispensational premillennialism or dispensationalism. Now, there are a lot of different definitions out there for dispensationalism, some from outside of the dispensational camp, some from within the dispensational camp, and not all of them are helpful, even the ones that some dispensationalists have given themselves. Um, But I think there is a definition provided by Michael Vlock that I've listed. The definition here is from his book entitled Dispensationalism. It's a very short book, probably 60 pages long. And I think this is a really good definition that gets out the heart of what dispensationalists have typically taught. And it is a system of theology primarily concerned with the doctrines of ecclesiology, that is the doctrine of the church, and eschatology that emphasizes the historical, grammatical meaning of Old Testament prophetic passages and covenants, a distinction between Israel and the church, and a future salvation and restoration of the nation Israel in a future earthly kingdom. Um, If this is the definition that we would use of dispensationalism, I'm all for it. I would heartily agree. This is a great definition, and under such a definition... There really isn't much of a distinction between futuristic premillennialism and dispensationalism. But what does this term dispensationalism mean? How is it historically used? So it's important to at least have some familiarity with what a dispensation is. And it refers, and so the definition, I don't think I have it here for you, but a quick definition is that it refers to a different administration in the eternal outworking of God's redemptive purpose. Essentially... It refers to different times of human history that God has revealed himself and regulated his people in different ways at different times. For example, instructions given to Adam and Eve in the garden and the conditions that they lived under and how they related to God were fundamentally different than after the garden. They were different for Noah. Abraham was even given different revelation and a command to circumcise his family. Moses brought in a new period of time with the giving of the law and the Mosaic Covenant. But really, with those descriptions and some amillennialists, non-dispensational premillennialists, and postmillennialists have actually stated 
everyone in one way or another believes in dispensations. Everyone believes that there is some difference between the way God has interacted and revealed himself and regulated his people. The great example of that is the difference between the Mosaic Covenant that is no longer binding upon those in the church. So, if everybody believes in dispensations, why is the system referred to as dispensationalism? Regarding the dispensationalist dispensations themselves, some dispensationalists have spent a great deal of time trying to identify how many total dispensations there are and what the characteristics of all of all of them are. And there's been an emphasis on the discontinuity between each of these areas. And sometimes that can be helpful, such as in the example of Moses in the Mosaic Covenant. Other times it hasn't been very helpful. Um, But what sets dispensationalism apart from other systems of thought is not its depictions of different periods of time. But rather, it is dispensationalism maintaining a consistent distinction between Israel and the church and a consistent interpretation that looks at the grammatical historical method of interpretation. One of, if you dis- hear much about dispensationalism, um, you will probably hear the excuse or the criticism that's brought against dispensationalism that dispensationalists teach multiple methods of salvation. It was salvation was by works in the Old Testament and is by grace in the New. And to be fair, there were some statements that earlier dispensationalists made that were at least confusing. Um, there are probably just unguarded statements that if they were being made in light of today's discussions would have been made very differently, but they left that impression. Uh, but later dispensationalists have definitely have clarified those, and no dispensationalist writer today would advocate anything that could even be confused with arguing for different means of salvation. Salvation has always been by grace through faith, from the time of Adam through Abraham through the into the future millennial king, kingdom. But you will hear this argument. You will hear it brought against. But it's helpful to know, if you do hear this, that many all-millennialists and post-millennialists have also recognized that this is no longer an accurate criticism. But the criticism continues, and so you will probably hear it if you're discussing dispensationalism. So, about these terms, I, I personally favor the term futuristic premillennialism as it focuses on the emphasis on the right areas, belief in the future fulfillment of prophetic promise in connection with the millennial reign of Christ, rather than putting an emphasis on the dispensations themselves. But the term is likely here to stay, and so I want you to be aware of it. And so insofar as the definition is dispensationalism is defined as it is on this page, um, I would affirm it. Um, but again, there are going to be um, some that write under the banner of dispensationalism that are going to uh, make things that are not the most important issue the most important issue. All right, so moving along, we've ta- we're talking about distinctions between 
within premillennialism. So we've talked about the, the major one, uh, the, the first one, the one that we're going to be most familiar with in, in this body. Even if you weren't familiar with the term dispensationalism or futuristic premillennialism, uh, that would the teaching that you've been hearing even this morning would really align with that sort of thought. But there is another flavor of premillennialism. Not all premillennialists are the same. And that would be known as historic premillennialism. And that's the next definition on your page. And so historic premillennialism believes in a future reign of Christ on earth, followed by the return of Christ. But there are a number of key differences um, one of them is, is that historic premillennialists often, not always, but often interpret Revelation 6 through 18, that is that tribulation period, as having already been fulfilled or fulfilled in church history currently. Historic premillennialism is a form, therefore, that can generally be described as post-tribulational concerning the rapture, especially when it advocates that the tribulation is occurring right now. Historic, premillennial, historic premillennialism sees the millennial kingdom of Revelation as future and earthly, but it differs with futuristic premillennialism or dispensationalism in a few key areas. We mentioned already is that first premillennialists, historic premillennialists, sometimes view Daniel's 70th week and the judgment of Revelation 6 through 18 as occurring in the present age. Many of them also believe that the Davidic reign of Christ, the reign of Jesus, is occurring in an already sense in this age. Jesus already sits on David's throne and he's reigning. So thus they uphold both a current presence of both the tribulation and Jesus' Davidic reign. Um, the, the next one and probably more significant difference between historic premillennialism and futuristic is that while historic premillennialism typically affirms a future salvation of Israel, which we heard today, some of the historic premillennialists see Israel as being incorporated into the church with little or no unique role for the nation of Israel in the earthly kingdom. So while they might be saved, they're not saved as a nation. There's no national presence of Israel in the millennial kingdom. It is rather that there are believed, believed Jews, believed Israelites, they're going to be saved, but not necessarily nationally. So when they do see a future mass conver conver conversion of Jews into the church, it's usually without experiencing a national future where physical descendants of Israel will be the inheritors of the land promises. Third, what we also see with historic premillennialism, and this comes largely under the influence of George Eldon Ladd, who is probably one of the most well-known kind of current modern um, defenders of historic premillennialism in the last uh, 50 years or so is that it, he believed in a radical interpretation of Old Testament texts. And we'll discuss this a lot more in detail next week. But the idea that the New Testament writers reinterpreted Old, text, Old Testament texts and assigned a new meaning that was never intended. 
And some historic premillennialists since him have described this differently, but the impact is the same. The significance and the meaning of the Old Testament can't be found in the Old Testament itself. And that's pretty alarming when it comes to, when I come to open my Old Testament. You mean I can't actually find the meaning here? Um, I, I, Lad, actually, an example of this is he even suggests that in its setting, Isaiah 53 is not a prophecy of Messiah, but yet it, it is seen as such in the New Testament. Therefore, the literal hermeneutic just doesn't work. Furthermore, the new, here's a quote, New Testament applies Old Testament prophecies for the New Testament church and in so doing identifies the church as spiritual Israel, end quote. So we see in historic premillennialism, similar interpretive methods and conclusions as amillennialism. So while it shares the name with premillennialism, it's actually far more similar to the amillennial and postmillennial cousins in that there is no or little distinction between Israel and the church. So what becomes the primary difference between all of these different views and how are they different? If we were to draw a line, there's postmillennialism, amillennialism, and even historic premillennialism, all under some way or another redefine the promises to Israel. And so there's a couple definitions. These are the last two we'll look at, terms to be familiar with, related to this swallowing up of the promises to Israel and fulfilling them to the church. And that is supersessionism and replacement theology. Supersessionism is the belief that the church has superseded Israel as God's chosen people of blessing. And replacement theology is a school of theology that the church has replaced Israel as the objects of God's blessing, really synonyms. And they're nearly identical terms speaking of the belief that the church has replaced Israel as the people of God and as the current and future recipients of the Old Testament promises to national Israel. So as we move in to discuss next week, we want to talk about hermeneutics. Is while we open this session saying, hey, we're going to start by describing all these different systems based upon when Jesus returns in reference to the millennium. As we get through all of them, really the chief divide becomes how do we interpret our Bibles and how do we understand God keeping his promises to Israel or does he change who those promises are going to be kept to and are they now in the church? There are a few additional definitions that we'll have to save for another session, uh, but they relate to covenant theology. And just one brief comment about them is that we actually see covenant theology, it's a system of beliefs, being one of the unifying threads between all of those three positions. Postmillennialism, amillennialism, and historic premillennialism can all be traced back to their primary defenders being those who believe in covenant theology. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, but one of the typical byproducts of that is that emphasis on the the, the continuity between people, the people of God in the Old Testament and the New, and eliminating the boundaries between the two. And so we'll talk about that next week as one of our chief areas that are important and determinative for how we approach these things. We are at 10, 10, 
10 till, so we'll end right there. But I do want to open it up for questions and realize that that may be dangerous territory because there's a lot of them that we're not going to be able to answer because we do plan to answer them in future weeks. But if there are any clarifications about what we have gone through, I'd love to hear from you. And for those of you who don't have time, you're welcome to stand up and walk away. Steve? Have I ever met a post-millennialist? I don't have you. Yep. So did I share the did I share the percentage? I think I shared that back in 2011 they made up about four percent of the evangelical um, church. So it's a pretty small number. Yep. Way in the back. Yep. I think I understand the question. Can there be different authors that believe in different things, some of these different beliefs that we have on our page? And absolutely. If, if they affirm the gospel, if they believe in the same gospel that we do, that the Bible presents, even though they differ on these areas, they're, they're, they can still be believers, and we love them, and we want to participate with them in as much as possible in the expansion of the gospel into the world. Um, but there are differences, and... We, we don't want to ignore those either. But that's a great question. Do you know what verses that English in millennialism use the anthropocene? Because I know you put them at kind of like a pre Yeah, the verses. Um, I think there's a lot of different verses. And so we'll probably have to look at some of those when we get back and look at each one of those systems. Um, but the, the, the big ones, because what we, you know, we referred... To the thing that links all of them is this obscuring the details between the church and Israel. You know, passages that speak of that there is now no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Um, Galatians 6 passages that Smedley mentioned today we didn't look at. Um, some would argue that it, there we call the church the new Israel. Some would even claim in Romans when we see the discussion of true Israel. See, there it's talking about spiritual Israel rather than believing physical descendants of Abraham. And so those are some of them, but there's a lot more because while they might be unified in general, those three different positions on the church in Israel and the lack of distinction, they still go very different ways in returns in regards to the millennium. So we'll have to talk more about those things in a later session. Great question. You're, you're trying to push me into the section of the notes that I'm going to have to wait for another week. But since you since you asked, um, covenant theology, I would say covenant theology is less about eschatology at its beginning, but more of an, an attempt and a way to interpret all of our Bibles that instead of looking to the biblical covenants, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, Moses, and understanding the progress of revelation and the way that God deals with people and how he's going to fulfill those promises in the future, rather than understanding God's program by reading the specific biblical covenants of Scripture, 
Covenant theology usually describes God's program, redemptive history, in relating to three theological covenants. Sometimes two, sometimes one. But they are theological covenants in that they're theologically derived or inferred from Scripture. They're not specifically stated in Scripture, but they would believe that they, are, they provide the understanding to, an under, to interpret and understand our Bibles. They are the covenant of uh, re- redemption, which kind of refers to Christ's eternity past decision and agreement and covenant to save believers. You know, we don't see that we believe there was an eternal plan of God. But it isn't described as a covenant in Scripture. Uh, they, all, they believe in the covenant of works, which is some sort of agreement between Adam and God that there would be consequences and, or blessing based upon Adam's obedience in the garden. Um, there certainly was an arrangement, and we stand here today because of the consequences of Adam's choice, but uh, that, that really isn't described as a covenant in Scripture. And so that would be covenant theology. But what it ultimately does is by bringing attention away from the the understanding of progressive revelation and the differences between people living in the church age and those in the Old Testament is that it attempts, it blurs the line between who the people of God are. It blurs the lines between Israel and the church. And now we begin to draw a lot. we, We don't we kind of avoid discontinuity between the Testaments, and we promote continuity such that in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign of the covenant. And so now it's different, but now baptism is a sign of the covenant. So if we baptized, if we, if we circumcise infants, we should circumcise, or we should baptize infants today. So that is related to covenant theology. And the next definition, reformed theology, um, we, we often use the term Reformed theology, and, and we often use it in really good ways. We use it to refer to the doctrines of grace that we love, that are part of GBC's biblical convictions. But Reformed theology is broader than that. And so in Reformed theology typically embraces the doctrines of grace, but it also embraces covenant theology, and it emphasizes one people of God, and it minimizes the distinctions between Israel and the church, which is why you often end up with infant baptism. But that being said, not all who would subscribe to Reformed theology would baptize infants. So we have Reformed Baptists. They would agree with Reformed theology. They believe in in the various covenants, but they would agree with us on baptism that it is for believers only. So that was a long-winded question. I'm going to cut it off there because I know many of you want to go get lunch. But thank you for sticking around longer, and we'll continue this next week.